What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul podcast. And not only, not only do I have a fantastic guest for you today, but this entire week, we're going to be focusing on psychology and mental health and so many cool things. And if you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter, you already knew that and you already know who is coming up, who the next guests are. All right. But today to kick this week off, we're starting with none other than David Buss. All right. So for those of you who do not know who David Buss is, you need to find out, all right? He is one of the foremost leaders when it comes to evolutionary kind of sexual psychology, all right? So he has been uh, in this field for many years. He's been researching it. He's been writing books. And I was only recently introduced to his work, but once I got into it, I'm like, dang, like this is really interesting stuff. So his his most recent book is When Men Behave Badly, right? So anybody who's not living under a rock, you know that, you know, there there is a, a wide problem uh, around the world, right, with sexual harassment, sexual assault, and all these things, right? And this has been a, a large part of David's research. And with the rise of the Me Too movement and everything like that, David sat down and he wanted to write this book. But anyways, he talks about that in our conversation. But we cover so many different topics, and it answers a lot of questions, right? His book will answer even more. So make sure you grab a copy but yeah, men, uh, we we overperceive uh, someone uh, being attracted to us, right? Like the signals, like it's a cognitive distortion almost. And this leads to a lot of problems, you know, and a lot of men aren't aware or they don't care, right? But how prevalent is this? How many, you know, uh, men are out there who are either, you know, sexual abusers or domestic abusers and all that? And I asked David that and we talked about it in this episode, right? But for those of you who have uh, been following the podcast, I a few weeks ago, I had the uh, professor Catherine Sanderson on here uh, about how to make moral rebels, right? So David and I, we discussed, like, why don't more people speak up? Because whenever I see one of these Me Too situations, I'm always like, how did this go on so long? How did nobody say anything? So we talk a little bit about that and how we can incentivize people better. And David actually talks about what they're doing on their campus. Uh, but we talked about all sorts of stuff. And one of them is like, I ask him, I'm like, hey, hey, based on your research, all these years of research, do you think anybody is just sexually hopeless, right? Because, you know, obviously there's like these incels and everything like that. But I have a theory about, you know, people being sexually hopeless. And David actually has kind of a funny story about this. But anyways, this was such a great conversation. And he answers so many questions. One of them too is I ask him why, what's the research tell us about why, you know, more women around, you know, my age group of millennials are deciding not to have babies, stuff like that. So we talk about all that. He answers a lot of my questions, but we don't even scratch the surface. So make sure you check down in the description down below so you can follow David over on Twitter and make sure you grab a copy of his book. I'll also link uh, some of his websites down below because there are actually resources to help women and things like that. So I'll link that down in the description below. All right. But for those of you who are like, hey, Chris, who are your other guests coming on this week? This episode sounds awesome. So I'm sure you're going to have even better episodes or as good episodes later this week. How do I know who's coming on? Well, in the description, you can find my social media handles at The Rewired Soul over on Instagram and Twitter. Make sure you're following me over there. All right. But even better, 
not only can you follow me on social media, but make sure whether you're on Spotify or Apple, make sure you're following or subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss it because Monday through Friday, we are dropping new episodes this week. All right. So anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with none other than David Buss about his brand new book, When Men Behave Badly. Hello, David. How are you doing today? Uh, I am doing, doing great. Uh, it's nice to be here chatting with you. Yeah, absolutely. I was I was only recently introduced to your work, and I just started reading your books and read the most recent one. And yeah, I, at first I was like, oh, no, is this going to be like the same thing? But it was different in that respect. So with, with this new book explaining kind of how men behave badly, like, I'm always curious, like what inspired you? Like you've written so much on this topic. Like what, what made you think like we, I need a, I need a new book for this. Yes. Well, uh, well, you're absolutely right. I've been studying human mating strategies and published on them, uh, uh, over the past 30 years or so. Uh, but, um, the topic of conflict between sex, and that's the focus of the new book, uh, when men behave badly, if it didn't roots of sexual harassment. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, deception, harassment, and assault, uh, that, that this deserved, uh, it's such an important topic, mm-hmm. um, partly due to the, uh, current cultural movements like the Me Too movement. Uh, mm-hmm. we just, uh, yesterday, governor Cuomo in New York, oh, uh, yeah. resigned due to, um, being, uh, I, I believe convicted of, uh, uh or, or found guilty of sexually harassing 11 women. Harvey Weinstein, of course, been in the news, Bill Cosby, Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, and so, um, you know, problems in everyday life of sexual harassment, uh, deception in only dating, uh, sexual yeah. predators in only dating sites, sexual coercion, sexual assault, stalking, intimate partner violence. Uh, these are all, uh, forms of sexual conflict and in particular, they're forms of sexual conflict whereby males are attempting to bypass female choice, mm. you know, and, and I regard female choices like the number one law of mating that is females have evolved to, uh, be choosy about when, where, with whom, and under what circumstances they consent to have sex and men have evolved strategies, uh, some quite abhorrent to try to bypass, uh, that freedom of choice. Mm-hmm. And so I, my goal is, um, and, and I've never done this before in my work was very much a, a practical role that is the goal of eliminating um, sexual harassment, sexual coercion, intimate partner violence, stalking. And we can't do that without understanding the causes uh, of these phenomena. And so that's really what the book is focused on is identifying the causes, the underlying psychological machinery, um, why the sexes have been in conflict over the last, uh, billion plus years yeah. uh, since sexual reproduction evolved. Um, so, um, so that's, that's really the focus. And I've never really done that in any of my other books. Of course, I've touched on the topic of sexual conflict in my other books, but this, uh, this is focused laser-like on that topic with that, that kind of practical goal in mind. 
Yeah. And, and it's, it's crazy. I've, uh, you know, I've been a guy just since I was younger, don't know why, like I've been friends with a lot of, you know, women. Right. And, and you, you hear about these statistics all the time, but like, it feels like just about every woman I've ever met, ever dated, you know, whatever there's been, uh, you know, uh, on the low end of the spectrum harassment, but in many cases, you know, sexual assault and things like that. So with like, the goal of your book, because me just being around women and hearing these stories and I've worked in addiction yeah. treatment and a lot of people who start abusing substances, it's, you know, started out with that kind of trauma and stuff. So with, with the goal of the book, like, cause I'm always kind of battling with this as well is like, is, do we think that like creating awareness and understanding will help us? I don't, I don't know what the next step is. Is it, is it acknowledging it, then create solutions, creating awareness? Like, because at a certain point I'm like, do people not know, you know, that like some of these things are going on. So I'm curious your thoughts about that. Yeah. Um, well, I think that there is, uh, knowledge, uh, is, is a first step mm. and, and specifically knowledge of the fact that men and women have fundamentally different evolved sexual psychologies and in, in a, in a, uh, really profound sense, we are stuck in the interiors of our own minds and brains. And so we have to make inferences about what's going on in the minds and brains of other people. And when it's a member of the same sex, it's much easier because we share mm. these evolved, uh, features of sexual psychology. But when it's of the opposite sex, so for example, men trying to infer what's going on in women's minds and women trying to infer what's going on in men's minds, there are large gulfs, you know, and what, what I found in my research and that I highlight in the book is that both men and women are off in understanding the sexual psychology of the, of the other sex. So, um, you know, just to put it in a concrete example, um, men uh, and this is what I found in my research, men underestimate how upsetting things, uh, sexual assault is, even mm. things like unwanted touching, groping, sexual harassment, men underestimate how upsetting that is to women, you know, and many men have the attitude of, oh, well, it's, you know, it's no big deal. You know, why is she getting so upset about it? But the fact is that these are efforts, as I mentioned, to bypass female choice. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's precisely why they're so upsetting, uh, to mm -hmm. women and to women have evolved to, um, defend against the things that we get upset about, things that we get angry about, uh, things that we are fearful of are things that have been dangerous to us over evolutionary time. So just, for example, we got evolved fears of snakes, spiders, yeah. darkness, heights, and these aren't random fears. These are, these are actual dangers. And then when you move into the social and mating and sexual realms, there are sexual dangers. Uh, and so men underestimate how upsetting these things are to women. Uh, and they also err in a variety of other ways. I'll mention one other and then, and then we can. Oh no, uh, I love uh, it. Uh, You're going. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, um, one of the things I highlight in the book, which is one, not the only, but one of the causes of sexual harassment is, uh, what I call the male sexual overperception bias. Mm, yeah. So that is a woman's classic example, woman smiles at a man or incidentally brushes up against his arm and he thinks, ah, 
she she's really interested in me. She wants me. Yeah. And the woman, of course, might be being just friendly or polite or you know, smiles an inherently ambiguous signal. I mean, it's sometimes it might involve uh, sexual interest, uh, but sometimes not. Yeah. So, uh, but men tend to over-infer sexual interest when it's not there. Uh, and, um, and, and, it, and one of the important points I want to make about that is it's not all men. So, mm-hmm. uh, so that as we found in our lab research, uh, headed by a former graduate student of mine, it's now professor Karen Perilou, where that, um, men who are high on narcissism, mm. uh, and men who pursue a short-term mating strategy, that is, they're looking for casual sex are especially prone to this male sexual overperception bias. So one way to think about that is they think they're hot, but they're not. Yeah. And I, and uh, and so this is, so, so it's not all, so I hope no one reads the book as a attempt to slam all men because it's not, yeah. it's not a book to slam men. It's in fact, a subset of men who commit the vast majority of, um, of acts of sexual violence. Mm-hmm. So, um, that are serial harassers. And that's why you have the male stuff like governor uh, Cuomo, if he is indeed guilty of what the 11 women charge mm-hmm. for. Uh, or uh, Jeffrey Epstein or uh, Harvey Weinstein, we're talking about dozens or possibly, in the case of Weinstein, possibly hundreds in the hundreds of victims of this. And and research on sexual harassment in the workplace shows the same thing. It's mm-hmm. a small subset of men who are committing or serial oh, harassers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so it's not all men. In fact, most men, many men, are applying those things morally abhorrent. You know, and mm-hmm. that's one of the key points that I'd like to make in that I'm making the book is that men really need to join forces with women in eliminating this because most men don't want, you know, the women that they care about, their, their sisters, girlfriends, daughters, mothers, female friends to be victims uh, yeah. of sexual harassment. And so, uh, and so men need to get, get involved in this and getting back to your earlier question a deep knowledge of sex differences in our evolved sexual psychology is critical mm-hmm. in understanding it uh, and, and, and eliminate that. Yeah. So here's, here's something that, uh, you know, I, I'm curious about. So a few weeks ago, I had uh, Catherine Sanderson on here. She, she wrote a book, Why We Act, How to Be a Moral Rebel. And a lot of it's about like speaking up or avoiding the bystander effect, right? And like yeah. you're saying, like men, we need to get involved and stuff like that. And, you know, I, I'm sure, you know, you're from, you're pretty familiar with like the, the Stanley Milgram obedience studies, right? Yes. So when, when I hear these stories, right, uh, like you, you've brought up like Harvey Weinstein, or most recently we have, you know, Cuomo or, you know, these, these people of power. And whenever I see this, uh, I don't know if you, did you hear about the recent story with Activision, uh, Activision Blizzard, that, uh, video game company? No, and, oh, so that's, that's a big story too. And like dozens, I believe dozens or even more women are coming forward about like this frat boy culture and like a lot of harassment and all these other things. Right. But whenever I see these stories in the workplace, because you know, other people knew about this. Right. But I always think back to the Milgram obedience studies. And I know there's like some controversy about how they were conducted and people like debate about it, but I'm like, well, it seems like people are so afraid of speaking to authority or losing their, uh, their, their, their job, or there's so many fears that they think that it's, it's safer 
to stay quiet. So I don't know how we incentivize people or get them to kind of recognize this when these huge, huge things are going on. Yeah, well, that's great, a great point. And I think that you're right in your analysis that it is it can be costly to speak up, mm-hmm. uh, especially if the, in this case, the sexual harasser is in a position of authority. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can harm your career. But, um, but here's, here's a solution. So, and this is something my university recently instituted. Mm. So uh, about sexual harassment in, in university context. So, um, uh, historically what it is, it has been up to the woman, uh, in this case, the victim of sexual harassment to report it, to document it, to, you know, if it comes to that, to, you know, testify about it. Um, uh, and the change is that everyone else, and this is now a university policy, this is, I'm at the University of Texas. That if, if anyone observes sexual harassment, they have to report it, uh, mm. you know, uh, even if they're not directly involved in it. And the actual threat is if you don't, you can lose your job. That's literally the, uh, yeah. you know, the, the potential penalty for failing to report observed sexual harassment. And so, and so this is an example where. Uh, it does two things. One is it changes the social norms. Mm. You know, it, it makes it legitimate to report these things. And of course, there there's anonymity in in reporting. You know, you you don't have to. You know, the, the the perpetrator doesn't necessarily find out who, who yeah. reports it, which poses some dangers in and of itself that, yeah. that concern me. Uh, but the other thing that it does is is it takes the burden off of the victim uh, and sort of makes the a burden mm. on everybody to, you know, and, and so I think it changes the social norm yeah. uh, and makes it less costly to, uh, uh, speak up and, 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 and hopefully, uh, and, and my, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of having a million rules and regulations, but I think that these things, if the change is just a social norm, like yeah. if I see a guy, even if it's a friend, you know, or a colleague, you know, sexually harassing woman. They hate, this is not cool. You know, don't do that. And mm-hmm. so rather than just leaving it up to the victim, uh, to, you know, marshal some kind of, uh, complaint or, or, or charge. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that things can be done. Uh, and again, this is another sex difference in our sexual psychology that men, uh, they, as I mentioned, they underestimate how upsetting this form of sexual harassment are to women. Even they don't even. They, they perceive the same acts as less harassing than women do. So, oh, yeah. um, you know, uh, and so there, there are sex differences and sensitivities, and this goes against some trend, some trends that I find kind of disturbing in the, in the culture, which is what I call sex difference denialism, you know, and I think that the, the deniers of sex differences, they're, they're intentions are sometimes good because they're, they're, they're worried that if we acknowledge that there are fundamental sex differences, then somehow these will be used to discriminate against women. Um, but I think in this case, the opposite is true. Denying the sex differences actually harms mm. the mm. half of the population that is most likely to be victimized by can you, can sexual you ex- violence. Can you explain what you mean by that a little bit, how it harms by not talking? Cause that's something I've been really curious about lately. Uh, yeah. So, so here's a, here's a concrete example. Um, uh, the, um, laws about sexual harassment 
they're written according to what's called the reasonable person standard. Mm. So there's this generic person. Would a reasonable person view this pattern of um, action as and is sexually harassed and okay. upsetting to the, to the victim. Well, if it turns out that, as it does, that reasonable mm. women differ from reasonable men, okay. then this generic reasonable person standard is actually, how do you deal with it? What if you have a reasonable judge in the case or men who are reasonable men on the jury versus a, a female judge and females on the jury? They yeah. will adjudicate the same actions differently because they have different evolved sexual psychology. Got it. And so, so even at the level of kind of policy implementation, I think it would be really, now I'm not, I'm not a legal expert, you know, and I have mm -hmm. to talk to uh, legal scholars about how, how to deal with this and if, yeah. in a way that's fair. Um, and you know, the, the, the reasonable person standard was, it's, it actually comes from English law, you know, going back you know, prior to. Uh, American, uh, United mm -hmm. States law that, uh, the, the intent is, is good. You know, that is in, and in many domains, a reasonable person standard is perfectly appropriate, but when it comes to the sexual domain and sexual crimes, a reasonable person standard is not appropriate. So, yeah. uh, so because that's one example of how, it, how it harms women. Yeah, no, that, that makes total sense. I've been reading a lot of books lately, mainly talking about, you know, the, the debates and kind of the outrage over the conversation around genetic or gender differences and stuff. And there's the argument, you know, in, in those realms as well with like biology and stuff of, hey, we need to right. talk about these because it could hurt people. I actually just finished an early copy of uh, Catherine Page Harden's book. It's called The Genetic Lo Lottery. Mm -hmm. And she talks about how like, you know, people like, oh, don't don't start talking about those genetic differences because that becomes this slippery slope. And then, you know, but it's like, but if we avoid those, conver I see what you're saying. If we avoid those conversations, we're not recognizing these things. And and I know the law is tricky, but I think that'd be great if you if you have another book and you team up with a lawyer and start tackling <laughs> those things. But here's here's my question for you. I don't know if you've researched this at all, or I'm sure it's come across your mind. Uh, since I'm like a big psychology nerd, I'm always thinking about perception too, right? Mm -hmm. So just to throw an example out there, like I I am no Brad Pitt. We know this, right? So bar woman standing there. Brad Pitt walks up, says something, right? I walk up, say something. Perception is different. I think you touched on this in the book. I do, right? yes. So, so based on whether or not the person's attracted to you, now, now here, I'm going to throw another thing your way, David, okay? okay. Everybody's preference is different. And since we're talking about, you know, mating and all that stuff, I am into thicker women, right? So if a thicker woman came up to me and hit on me, Right. And then a real skinny, like supermodel skinny, I wouldn't be attracted to her. So I would perceive those different. And one I might perceive as harassing, one I might not. So perception plays a big role. And this is just something that I think about because when we're talking about rules and stuff, and like you mentioned, like, you know, what you're doing on the university, like if if a super attractive professor did that to a colleague, but then an unattractive one did the same thing, like, doesn't that get a little tricky since perception plays a role? Yes. Yeah. And I would say that in this case, uh, the, the perception is, uh, tied to our underlying sexual psychology. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's perception, not in the sense of just sort of visual input, but it's visual okay. input that's tied to our underlying sexual psychology. And, and, and yes, uh, th there's research. I do talk about that in the book of it's not just physical attractiveness. Mm. So, uh, but that is one barrier. 
it's like so, status, another one, like status, uh, status, status. status is another one. So, uh, so for example, if the janitor in the building, uh, you know, starts is sexually persistent, um, women find that more upsetting than if it's, um, you know, let's say, uh, a, a, a rock star, or, you know, yeah. or whatever a rock star is a, maybe they expect that there's a difference to it, but status does make a difference with the qualification that if the person high in status happens to have power mm-hmm. over the victim, then that, then women find that very upsetting because this is, uh, this is one of these situations that puts women in a very awkward, um, bind because they, let's say they want to, uh, reject this offer. So man, let's say a tour just says, I, I want to go, let's go out for a drink after work or let's go mm. on a date. Uh, or why don't you come back to my place? I have some etchings I'm going to show you. Um, that, that, that if the guy has power over her, then women often engage in what I call soft rejection, where mm-hmm. they say, you know, uh, oh, I'm, I'm busy. I can't do that. Or I have a boyfriend. Uh, so they try to communicate that they're not interested, but not, they don't say, uh, look, um, I'm, I have zero interest. You're a total loser and I'm rejecting <laughs> you, um, because the, their, uh, as we kind of alluded to earlier, consequences for, uh, yeah. retaliation, which, which people sometimes do. Yeah. I actually talk about a case of that in the, in the book, in this true example involving, um, Bill O'Reilly and a woman mm. that I happen to know, Wendy Walsh, where, uh, she was appeared on Fox news and in, in various segments as a, as an expert on relationships. And he said uh, to her, let's have dinner. I want to talk about your career and talk about having you, uh, becoming a regular on the show. Um, and so, uh, and so she thought this was fantastic. And then after dinner, he basically said, um, uh, I'd like you to come up to my room, yeah. uh, hotel room. And she declined and he got very angry. Apparently according to her reported said, uh, well, you can forget about all that business advice I gave you before. Yeah. And they basically cut her out of the, uh, out of the TV show. And so this is an example where spurning men, uh, sometimes retaliate against women. Yeah. And so that puts women in this bind where if they're not interested and want to turn down the guy, but they also don't want to jeopardize their careers, they have, they have this problem. That's why I think greater awareness is, uh, is critical. Yeah. And, and I'm curious too, like going back a little bit earlier, we were talking about the difference between what men perceive as flirting or this person's interested too. Right. So, so I don't know, like is so, okay, let's, let's go back to that example of, of Bill O'Reilly, because I, I think about all these factors. Like if let's say you, Bill read your entire book and he realizes like, oh, I might be getting false signals at the fact that she agreed to dinner means that she's interested, right? So when she turns down going up to the room, he's like, okay, part of my sexual psychology is throwing me off here, okay? But then on top of that, uh, when I think about, you know, jealousy and, you know, you cover a lot of that in your book too, there's also this kind of uh, uh, more, you know, like, like our in-group status, right? Like what if somebody in Bill's circle found out that she turned him down too, right? So he has this want and need to be like, oh, well, I... You know what I mean? So that yeah. kind of intertwines as well. So uh, I guess basically what I'm asking is like, what, what would, what in a perfect world, what would the optimal 
like outcome of that scenario be where she interpreted, oh, we're talking about business and his sexual psychology is interpreting, you know, if I'm just giving him the benefit of the doubt that that wasn't just his intention the entire time. You know what I mean? What's what's optimal here? Yeah, well, uh, well, so that's a good question. And, and <laughs> I don't know if there are any uh, totally optimal solutions, but I think that um, uh, awareness, knowledge of something like the sexual overperception bias yeah. um, is, is critical here. So for, for both men and women, so for men mm. to realize, well, if she agrees to dinner with me, if she smiles at me, that, you know, I have this sexual overperception bias. And so maybe I need to be careful and, and find more cues before I conclude that she in fact is interested in me in that way, mm-hmm. sexually or romantically. Uh, and then women need to know also that men are likely to make this appear uh, uh, in sexual uh, misperception, and um, in that uh, their uh, uh, smiles or touches, in you know, incidental touches, however uh, innocuous they may seem, just knowledge that men sometimes misinterpret those mm-hmm. uh, yeah. will give them. So I think you know, make men aware of the differences sex differences in our sexual psychology is critical to helping to bridge this gap. Now, is this an optimal solution? Does this magically cure all problems? No, of course not, but it's one step in the right direction. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and part of the reason I asked so much of this stuff is because, you know, I have a 12-year-old son. They just reopened the schools. They're going back for maths and stuff. But he's he's 12. He's getting that age. Yeah. And I remember before we figured out if he was a boy or a girl, like I was definitely afraid to have a, a girl because I know how guys can be. But now that I have a son, like I have this like, like, I need to teach this kid, right? <laughs> like, hey, your sexual overperception bias, we need to watch out and stuff like that. So that's one of the reasons I think books like yours are so important because I agree. Like, once we acknowledge it, like, you know, I read the work of like, you know, Daniel Kahneman. I love reading books on biases and all these other things because I feel like it helps me pause and just be like, okay, is something in my brain skewing this? And and honestly, like. I, I, I almost think that having lower self-esteem in some situations, like me, when I was back in my single days and dating, it was like, I need like an over-the-top sign that this person is interested right. in me. You know, so right. sometimes self-esteem might be beneficial. But there was one part of your book where you brought something up, and I think maybe this would be very helpful if people learn. But you talk about this kind of irreplaceable mate value. All right. So you have a lot of guys or you mentioned like incels in the book and stuff like that. And there's a lot of there's a lot of guys who try to date. They're like a six or a seven. Right. And they want a nine or a ten. Well, let's say that works out for them. Well, based on the irreplaceable and correct me if I'm wrong, but based on the irreplaceable mate value, if that lower status six of a person, whether it's status or physical attractiveness, they don't really have a guarantee that that person's going to stay because that woman might jump ship the second a more attractive or higher in status male. So is that an argument for these guys to start dating at their level? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> uh, that uh, I think that's one of the most important things. If you're interested in uh, an enduring uh, romantic relationship, then you have to pick someone who's within your mate value range. The yeah. main value is something, it's not, it's not a static entity, uh, in the sense that it changes with the, mm. the fortunes of time. I mean, people get sick, they get injured, they get a job promotion, they, 
they publish a best-selling novel, whatever. There's these yeah. rises and falls in, in status and mate value. Uh, and so, but, um, but the, the guy who's a six coming after a woman who's an eight or a nine, even if he is fortunate enough to attract her in the short run, she's statistically more likely to cheat on him and more likely to trade up in the mating market, you know, when the opportunity arises. Yeah. Uh, and so I think for both men and women, selecting a mate within your mate value range is critical. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's so, that's so important. And, and yeah, I just, I want, if anybody takes away anything from this conversation, I hope it's that. It's like, here's a good reason to date within your range. You know what I mean? Because yeah, like just the yeah. way we're, we're kind of wired, but here's so, something. So we can, we can just, if I could add a qualification yeah. to that. Um, so what we're talking about here is a consensual mate value that is, that is agreed mm. upon if you have a hundred people in the room okay. and assess the mate value of A versus B, there would be a fair amount of consensus. Okay. But there are also the individual differences in mate value. So I know one woman, for example, who mm. um, is, uh, she's a, a, a Slavic scholar okay. and she really places a high priority on a guy who has deep knowledge of Russian literature. So she hmm. can have these high level discussions. Now, this is a, you know, an individual mate purpose. Most, most people don't have this as a key quality that they're looking for in a mate, but she does. And, and, and so there are individual differences and that's very fortunate because that, what that means is that uh, yeah. is, can be higher in mate value to you, but not necessarily to other people. I see what you mean. Got it. So, but, so for example, like, you know, I, uh, if, if like, I'm really good at fixing cars and a girl grew up, you know, liking mechanics or something, then maybe, you know, right. like, if, like, if we have a bunch of different like levels, I, I play video games. So I'm thinking about like stats, right? So like, maybe it's like attractiveness <laughs> yeah. is down here, but auto repair or whatever is up here. Maybe that can help. Right. That can help kind of balance it out. So, so yeah, maybe we just need to be better at uh, uh, assessing it. And, and that, that segues into something I've been dying to ask you since I read, you know, your, your previous books too, because there's this like kind of idea, like we, let's just take any just like typical man or woman, wherever they're at on the attractiveness scale. Some people, you know, my background's in mental health and stuff. And there's this idea like, oh my God, I'm going to be single forever. I'm never going to find anybody. And I, I've always just had this idea. I'm just like, I don't think that that has any type of like reality to it. I think that everybody can find someone. It's about finding the right mate value and matching it up. I feel like that's a lot of the issues with people not being able to, you know, attract like, you know, a long-term mate or even like a casual hookup. You know what I mean? So, yeah. so like based on your experience, have you ever met, <laughs> this is a weird question. Have you ever met somebody you're like, oh no, nobody will ever be attracted to you because I, <laughs> I just don't see that as the case, like I was a drug addict for almost a decade and I mm. still found people, even though my life was a mess, you know what I mean? Yeah, so I'm yeah. like, if, if I could do that back then, I think Perfect. there might be hope for you. You just got to find the right people. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, um, so I, uh, I, I would say the answer is, uh, yes, uh, for the most part, um, all of their exceptions and an important social context called sex ratio, which I'll, which I'll mm. mention in, in a minute, but. Uh, but just a sort of a personal anecdote, um, when I did the, my very first study of, uh, of, uh, this was, uh, married couples, uh, and, uh, what we did is we brought them into the lab and we had a male and female interviewer and we interviewed the couples 
And then after we interviewed them, we rated on a, them on a variety of characteristics independently. So uh, the personality characteristics of who had more power in their relationship, who talked more, but also how physically attractive with, mm. with, is this individual. And, um, why, and one of the things that we found is that there were, when we got to the physical attractiveness rating of this one couple, uh, you know, kind of looked at each other because it was like, it's like the guy was a one on <laughs> the one to seven scale, one to 10 scale. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and the woman was a bit fiber, but they they were married to each other. So, yeah. um, so, so even, even, um, people who are relatively unattractive people can find others, uh, but here's the qualification censorship. So the extreme example was in, is in uh, mainland China right now with the, the cohort that um, was under the one-child policy. Yeah. So, so they, they favored male children over female children. So there's, a, in this cohort, a surplus of men. And now they're a mating age, and there aren't enough women to go, to go around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, and so when, you're, when you have an extreme sex ratio imbalance, in this case, a surplus of men, no, not everybody is going to succeed in finding a oh, mate. Okay, yeah, that makes uh, sense. Uh, and, but, and this relates to a more general point and then to an earlier point that we were discussing, uh, about mate value is that different environments, even within, within our culture have different sex ratios within them. So for example, one of the things I talk about in, in the new book is what I call the mating crisis among educated women. Yeah. Uh, and and yeah. that is that it is the fact that at colleges and universities in both, uh, uh, North America and throughout most of Western Europe, more women than men are getting higher degrees. They're getting more educated, both at the college level and at the higher degrees. And so at the, at the undergraduate level and at the graduate level, to some degree, there's a sex ratio imbalance. So people tend to find mates from their work pool. That's one of the main sources, mm-hmm. uh, but there are exceptions. So the exceptions are engineering so caltech or mit there's a surplus of men okay and so uh, and this just a practical piece of advice for for your son when he uh, reaches college uh, age might want to look at the sex ratios of the colleges that he's applying to uh, yeah. and see for for women you know that is the rarer sex uh, has an advantage in the mating market yeah uh, and uh and e- example from a talk that I gave not too long ago at Texas Christian University, a former student of mine's a professor there now, mm-hmm. uh, Sarah Hill, she invited me to give a talk. And so I was chatting with the undergraduates and the women told me there's a t- TCU, Texas Christian University, there's 60% women, 40% men. Mm. Uh, and the women basically said a guy who's normally a five in any other context is an eight at TCU. Yeah. And then when I talked to guys who had formerly gone to TCU, they get this kind of glazed look in their eyes as they fondly remember this one time in their life when they were high in meat value. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, so, so the, the sex ratio environment is critical and varies tremendously with subculture. So you mentioned gaming culture. Well, my understanding is that that's a culture subculture where there's a, produ- a surplus of men yeah. relative to women in that culture. You know, there, so, so, um, 
picking, uh, if you want to succeed in mating, one piece of advice is pick a, uh, a social environment where you are the rarer sex. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And that's hilarious that you bring that up about TCU. I went, when I went up to uh, junior college, it was in this tiny town in Northern California called Quincy. You're just driving through the forest. All of a sudden there's a town population was like 1500, right? But it was like that as well. And there was, uh, it was a, it was kind of a sports school. I went up there originally for football and there was a lot more men than women. And like, you know, women were much more attractive than if you were in a, a bigger city or, or something like that. And that's interesting. And I'm curious too, is that does that explain any type like i know there's a million factors such as like substance use and stuff does that explain any of the high higher rates of sexual violence on college campuses do you think like with some of these like have you looked at that like is it happening at schools where there's a lower percentage of women and more competition among men or anything like that yeah i haven't looked uh looked at that and I, i'm not aware of studies of that specifically but it wouldn't surprise me if that occurred because one of the other things is when you get a surplus of women, the whole mating system tends to shift more toward a short-term mating situation, mm. so casual hookups. And, and so I think a lot of the hookup culture on some college campuses do, is due to sex racial imbalance. And so what happens then is um, women compete with each other for the smaller number of men that are available. And one of the ways in which they compete is by dressing in sexier clothing, mm. skimpier, more tight-fitting clothing, and also signaling sexual availability. Uh, and, and so this sometimes puts women in social contexts where they might be at risk Got uh, it. of sexual violence. But, but again, this is, that's yeah. a speculation. I don't know yeah. of any empirical studies that have documented that. Yeah. And that, that would be tricky too, with that over-perception bias too, when you have women right. dressing more sexual. Uh, yeah. So, so I, yeah, that'd be an interesting study if someone did it. And something else, I, I cannot find an answer for this, David. And I was like, when I talk to him, I have to ask. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm 36 years old, right? Millennial and. As I mentioned, I know uh, a lot of women. I've had friends. I've been friends with women since junior high, high school. Yeah. And we're now adults today. And I'm sure you've seen this, but there is a growing number of women uh, around my age who do not want children, right? But based on just about everything I understand about evolutionary psychology, it's all about mating. Like everything's about mating and reproducing, but there's so many women who do not want children right. well, in this demographic. Right. So, well, first of all, just a clarification, it's, it's all about mating, but okay. not, not reproducing. So, okay. so in other words, all, all the selection, uh, evolution by selection built in to us is, uh, a desire for sex, okay. uh, a desire, uh, an attraction toward people with particular qualities, such as fertile individuals, uh, and then reproduction happened. Uh, so you Got don't, it. Uh, evolution didn't have to build in a desire to reproduce, you know? Okay. Um, so it's that start point, not the, not the second well, step. Well, yeah. In, in, in another way of uh, putting that is that our sexual psychology is the end product of a long and unbroken chain of ancestors each of whom succeeded in the mating game. They succeeded in attracting a mate, succeeded in attracting a mate long enough to have sex with that mate uh, and long enough to reproduce with that mate. Uh, and so we are 
descendants of this chain of successful ancestors. So we carry with us the mating psychology that led to their success, mm. but that doesn't, it's not forward looking that, so in other words, it's, it's not saying, and this is a, it's an easy conflation that a lot of PhDs make this, uh, error. They think that uh, there should be like a goal of maximizing reproductive success. Uh-huh. And no, there's no goal of maximizing reproductive success. It's just, um, attract, uh, individuals who are reasonable and mate value within your range and do all the things you need to do. Got um, it. So, so, but, but you're absolutely right. There's this trend and it's not just in the United States, uh, there are lower mm. rates of actual reproduction, uh, in, uh, throughout Western Europe and also then, uh, some Asian cultures such as, uh, Japan, uh, and, uh, South Korea, uh, to some degree where they're below, uh, even, even in Italy, the reproductive mm. rate is below the placement level. Uh, and in the United States, uh, it, 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 the people here are also reproducing below placement level, but we have, uh, in, there, we have immigrants coming in and they reproduce and that sort of balances it out. So we're not, you know, net, we're not losing uh, the net population numbers in our culture, but they are, uh, in Italy, uh, and it might happen in the United States as well, mm. uh, because people who uh, come from cultures where they historically had a larger number of children become acculturated to American life and start having fewer children. So, yeah. so this is, this is a worldwide, um, issue, uh, I shouldn't say worldwide, it doesn't occur in all cultures, but something that is a great concern, uh, just even from a practical level, because yeah. you have a, a shrinking workforce and kind of ballooning group of uh, yeah. old, old people who were on social security. And, and so the, 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 this has economic consequences yeah. as well. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And like, I'm not, uh, I'm far from an epi- economics guy, but I hear about, you know, we're talking about technological advances and AI taking jobs and stuff like that. And then I'm thinking about less people being born. Like, is that gonna kind of balance it out? Like if, if less jobs are available and we're automating more things, is that anything that we've looked at? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I haven't, um, you know, and, and who knows where things will end up in the future, you know, yeah. uh, uh, it's, uh, uh, risky to make predictions, uh, too yeah. far, too far out. You go a year or two, out, uh, five years, 10 years, who knows? I mean, yeah. I don't think anyone could have predicted, for example, 20 years ago that, um, there would be something like Facebook, you know, right. or, t- or Twitter, uh, mm-hmm. no one could predict these things or that everybody is walking around with a very high powered computer in their pocket in the form of a cell phone. Um, that can put them in touch with, you know, anyone around the world, yeah. uh, thousands of potential mates on dating sites, um, et cetera. No one could have predicted these things. So who knows what's going to happen 10 years from now? Yeah. Yeah. It's I mean, good. Yeah. 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 I, I just finished a book about, you know, climate change and stuff like that. And it was talking, you know, we don't know what technological advances might help stop climate change. But then I also think about the population and, you know, well, that, but that's a, that's a whole thing that, that gets <laughs> yeah. complex and hurts my brain. But, uh, right. speaking of, speaking of Twitter, we talked about this briefly on Twitter, but as I was reading your book, I had this question and you, you said it's, it's helped some women like your book, right? Like, cause my concern when I'm reading, when I'm reading the book and earlier we were talking about, you know, the goal of the book, what is it and educating and, you know, teaching people about, you know, this sexual psychology and stuff like that. And 
you know, I, I look very scientifically. I just try to leave out my biases and emotions and just like look at it for what it is. But my concern is that some of it's like, oh, hey, guys are guys are just going to do this. Right. So I'm curious, you know, like women, uh, you know, who have been uh, assaulted or women who are worried about the climate and the workplace and all these things, like, has it been helpful for them? Have people mentioned like a victim blaming aspect at all? Like, I'm curious the yeah, feedback yeah. you've gotten. No, the, re the reception uh, to my book, when men behave badly has been very uh, warmly received by women. So mm. there've been a number of women who have reviewed it. And uh, some from, uh, for example, in the UK, my book came out under just slightly different title for reasons that we can get into if you're interested, but we don't have to. Uh, <laughs> no. but, uh, it's called, but in the UK, it's Bad Men with the same subtitle, mm. The Hidden Roots of Sexual Deception, Harassment, and Assault. But um, there's a, a kind of a, a, apparently a left-wing publication called The New Statesman in okay. the UK, and they published a very, written by a woman, published a very favorable a uh, strongly favorable review. The book said basically, uh, and a number of women said this, they're going to give this book to their teenage daughters to read. Uh, and hopefully people will give it to their teenage sons to read as well. Yeah. Other people have said, um, like one co colleague who read the book said, like, this should be required reading for all fre incoming freshmen oh, uh, for in, sure. in college because it's valuable information. So, uh, so, but, but no, I, I think I take beans in the book to avoid victim blaming. Uh, mm -hmm. so, so even things like, um, you know, it, it's an interesting phenomenon when it comes to sexual violence, because like if someone gets mugged, you're walking down the street, someone gets mugged, no one blames the victim, right? It's, it's a, it's a crime that's defined by the act, but it's unfortunate that sexual violence uh, was when a woman gets, uh, raped or sexually assaulted, sometimes they do blame or even sexually harassed. They think, well, what was she here? Uh, it, what, what is her, how many sex partners has she had previously? And I, and I think we need to shift the mindset on that because, uh, sexual assault is, is a crime and there is a victim. Now, are there attributes of victims that make them more vulnerable to sexual assault? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We know, for example, drinking alcohol is, is one of them. Drinking alcohol, it disables women's, uh, uh judgment and decision-making. Uh, and it also impairs her physical. So you, you're mm. physically weaker when you've, when you've had a number of drinks. And so women are less able to fend off or, or even accurately perceive that a sexual assault might be done. Now, this is not to blame the woman because the sexual assault, of course, is still a crime committed by the man. Uh, mm -hmm. and that should be clear, but nonetheless, um, you know, women, um, you know, should be aware that certain things put them in danger. And if they go alone to a, a frat party where there are these, uh, red solo cups of, uh, with unknown, uh, mixtures in them, unknown concentrations, of alcohol, they need to be careful. And one of the things I talk about, and I think one of the most important chapters in my book is women's defenses against yeah. sexual coercion. Uh, and I talk about about a dozen of those. And one of the most important ones is bodyguards. So, uh, so in other words, the woman's, um, friends, family, male friends, female friends, coalitional allies, people who by their mere presence deter sexual aggression. Uh, and, uh, and, and so 
And any guy who is contemplating sexual aggression uh, will be will be deterred by that. And if they do try it, then the woman has these bodyguards. Uh, and, and so in a, in a weird way, and this is what I call an evolutionary mismatch. I mm. didn't invent the term, of course, but the, the conditions under which we evolved are very different from the conditions in Abbott right yeah. now. And so, for example, women go off to college and university uh, where they don't have any friends necessarily, or and they're far away from their families, their, their mm. kin. And their friends and family the formerly provided these bodyguards, you know, a, a suite of coalition allies. Uh, and so the woman is uh, more vulnerable. And, and, and so we find, and I highlight this in the book, that freshman women are especially vulnerable because it's a totally novel environment and they're not used to the, uh, the dangers in that environment. And mm. so as women, they get to be sophomores, junior seniors, the, the uh, victimization rates decline, uh, in part because women become more, um, savvy about navigating this novel environment. But I think just, uh, not only this, why, uh, I, I have a daughter in, uh, and I'm having her read the book, uh, yeah. you know, and, uh, you know, men who care about women, um, and, you know, as I mentioned, their female friends, their daughters, sisters, and so forth need to have this information, uh, yeah. you know, with that goal of, uh, want to reduce, ideally eliminate sexual violence. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think you explained that well. And I, and, and I agree. I think you did an excellent job in the book. Like I, and maybe it's just because I'm very like mindful of like how you've, you've seen how things can explode and people get offended or outraged. And are you saying, you know, are you saying we're to blame or men are just going to be like this, but I think you did an excellent job breaking it all down. But I think of it, you know, all, for example, I'm not a camper. And if I was going to a new area and went camping, I'd want to, I'd want to know like what these bushes mean, if there's going to be poison ivy, you know, just to be aware so yeah. I can kind of avoid it or prepare and stuff like that. Um, because, because yeah, uh, that's, that's one of my fears. Like, um, when I was working in addiction treatment and stuff, uh, because a lot of people who become addicted to substances, they're victims of trauma a lot of people victims of sexual abuse from childhood and stuff and yeah. there's this balance of like uh you know i'm the son of an alcoholic mom where it's not my fault but now it's like i can be aware of my situations now that i'm older i have more control and the more i educate myself and i live in las vegas and i have to learn about all the stuff going on so i can guard myself from a relapse so that's kind of how i try to explain it and a lot of people do take it better than, than some. They're like, oh, you know, it's not my fault that this happened to me. And, you know, it's like, yeah. I know, I know, but we got to control what we can. Is that kind of what you, you try to teach your daughter and, and yeah. others? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, you, you could say if like one reaction could be, well, in an ideal world, mm. um, you know, it shouldn't matter. Women can dress any way they want, act any way they want, uh, uh, slim 12 Jägermeisters anytime they want. <laughs> um, uh, but you know, it's, uh, we don't live in that ideal world. You know, we live in a world where there are, um, real, uh, sexual dangers out there, you yeah. know? So, and we, we've talked about sexual harassment, we've talked a bit about sexual assault and defenses against that. In the book, I also go into intimate partner violence, which is mm. another form of sexual violence. So, um, and which is during the pandemic, uh, increased dramatically. So estimates are. The rates of intimate partner violence blown up by about 20%. Uh, 
during mm. the pandemic, uh, due to, especially in situations yeah. where women are basically stuck with a guy, um, that they were on the verge of leaving or in the process of leaving. Uh, and, uh, and that's often the case though. The reason I call, uh, this physical violence, a form of sexual violence is because the goal of the abuser is often mate guarding or mate keeping when he wants to keep the woman mm -hmm. uh, for himself and prevent her from, uh, from leaving. And so that's again, a, a means of bypassing female choice. Yeah. So, so, uh, and yeah, sir. No, 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 no. Uh, it, it reminds me cause, uh, I think that's one of the, the phenomena that just confused me, uh, or did until I read your book is, is stalking. Right. And that, uh, I believe you said is that's also a form of mate guarding and occupying the woman. Like the goal is kind of occupying the woman's time. So it decreases the amount of time she could have to meet a potential other mate. Is that kind of the well, psychology well, behind that? Well, so, so this stalking is, um, not all stalking is mating related, but a lot of it, it's majority okay. of it is. And, and one of the largest categories is, um, a woman who has a left her relationship. So she's moved out uh, and the guy starts the, to stalk her. So, well, a couple of things there. Okay. One is that, uh, in our study of, uh, 2,500 victims of stalking, what we found is that the stalker is lower in mate value than uh, the victim of stalking. And so part of the male psychology is a realization that he will never be able to replace her, uh, effectively. He's lost someone. He was. He's in a, you know, and so, but the, the goal is often either to try to get her back, uh, which, um, doesn't happen in the high frequency. Yeah. Cases. Pretty rare. Um, but also to interfere with her teacher mating efforts. So, uh, and the unfortunate thing is it's by diabolically effective in the sense of like guys are deterred. So yeah. guy shows up and she says, oh, oh, don't mind my ex. He's spying on us with binoculars, you know, he's got some weapons in his car and, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, you know, and the guys say, look, I, I really like you, but call me when you get rid of your stock. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, it can be a frightening, frightening thing. And, and so the, the diabolical conclusion is that sometimes it is effective in interfering with the woman's attempts to remake, mm. you know, one woman actually said in our study, um, this, uh, her ex basically threatened every guy that she saw. And after six months, she ended up going back to her, to her ex because there were no other guys. Yeah. He just he had, iced her out from everybody he else. successfully, uh, repelled all other potential mates. And so it's like, you know, directed toward her and also directed toward interfering with these other attempts to remake. Yeah. So, uh, and as I go into the, the underlying psychology of that, and also in that chapter, I offer victims of stalking yeah. uh, who, who are plentiful, by the way, uh, a set of the uh, sort of best practice advice on how to deal with stalking if you're a victim of it. We even have, and I cite this in the book, a website that we created devoted to helping victims of stalking. It's called stalkinghelp.org. Yeah. Perhaps just a number of, uh, it's, it's a research for victims of stalking and what to do about it. Got it. Yeah. I, I remember you mentioned that. I'm glad you brought it up again. Cause I'm going to put that in the description, but yeah, it it's, it's crazy. It, it blows my mind because one of the worst things is that, like you mentioned, it is 
effective. So, you know, the more tools people have to kind of not let that happen, um, you know, or prevent it. And, and yeah, it bums me out too, because just even, uh, you know, women I've known who have, uh, had stalkers and stuff, the, the legal route isn't even always the best thing because you need, you know, a certain amount of evidence or proof or this to happen. And sometimes it's just too late. So, so yeah, it feels like there's a few things that need to happen, but you know, whatever resources people can have to kind of navigate it. Yeah. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I want to keep you all day. I literally have like 20 more things, but I want people to go get this book. So before I let you go, I'm going to hit you with one more question, David. Okay. So I'm going to, let me preface this first. So one of my things, right. Growing up and, you know, it was probably the out there. There's a whole bunch of stuff I've gone through therapy for and stuff like that. Like probably my alcoholic mom, but I, I always needed a relationship, right. Led me to a lot of toxic relationships. And I see that a lot with people. And the best thing I ever did, David, like was for like a year. It was actually the year I got sober because there's this rule like in 12 step programs. So like, don't date for a year. Right. Best thing I ever did because it rewired me to kind of know like, oh, you'll survive when you're single. Right. But anyways, uh, it seems like one of the biggest things affecting people in their mental health is like, this, this insane fear of loneliness, right? So they'll, they'll jump into terrible relationships or toxic relationships. And I'm just curious, like from your perspective, like, like I get it, we want to, you know, have mates and stuff like that, but why is it so difficult for us to stay single? Like, is there anything we could do? Has your research found anything? Have you come across any studies like that will help us just be okay being single until we find somebody with the right mate value? Yeah. Oh, well, it's a, it's a good question. Well, I think it's one of these examples that we're, uh, where there's a mismatch. I mean, we evolved to be successful maters. Uh, and so staying <laughs> single is very difficult. I mean, as I mentioned, we're the descendants of the long and unbroken line of successful maters, you know? Um, and so that's what we evolved to do. If yeah. we were asexual, like some species are, we wouldn't have to bottle it, you know? You don't yeah. have to go through this diabolical, uh, complicated process of mate selection, mate attraction, mate keeping and all that. But we're a sexually reproducing species. And that's why I think I view, and it's maybe, you know, this cliche, you get someone hammer and the world seems full of nails that need to be pounded. Yeah. Well, that's what I feel about mate. It's like the center of the universe. It's related yeah. to everything. Uh, and so, uh, and in, in, you know, we're an extremely social species. We didn't mm-hmm. evolve to be alone. Yeah. You know, we evolved to, to live in groups and to find mates. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so difficult. And I, I don't know if we're going to kind of catch up evolutionarily to that point, but I actually stayed single, uh, and celibate for like 18 months and it kind of just broke this spell. I'm like, Oh, I survived. Okay. And I was able to, I was able to be like, okay, well, instead of going after threes, like on a psychologically stable level, I can go after like sixes and sevens, you know what I mean? And my current girlfriend, you know, it's the healthiest relationship I've been in. So, but a lot of people I've noticed that they just, they can't stay single long enough to find that one. And, and sometimes you're stuck in a situation, like you mentioned that, that one young woman where a stalker repelled everybody. Right. So someone, you know, where she might've found somebody more psychologically healthy they were deterred. And so it's, it's, it's tricky, but, uh, yeah, it's something that I try to <laughs> teach people, like just learn how to be okay being single for at least a little bit. But anyways, David, thank you so much. And, uh, yeah, before I let you go, 
uh, if there's any any other resources like the Stalking Help one or like where can people find you? I found you and we connected on Twitter. Like where's the best yeah. way to keep up with you, yeah. your research? If you end up writing another book, like you have yeah. a few to keep people busy. Okay. But, I, well, well, I do. So, well, well first of all, I just, uh, you read it, your listeners might be interested in the cover uh, of this one. So and it's kind of a cool cover. I didn't I love create it. it, of course. I'm bad at that. But um, <laughs> when men behave badly, uh, I would say an, another key book. Uh, so I've written about seven books or so. Um, and I would say uh, another key book is my book, The Evolution of Desire, yep. Strategies of Human Mating. Because that kind of gives an overview of all the strategies of human mating. Mm-hmm. Whereas the current book focuses on the issue of conflict between the sexes. That book gives an overview of tactics of attraction, tactics of mate attention. People can find me by just uh, Googling my name, davidbus.com, uh, B-U-S-S-2-S, it's not, not the streetcar bus, <laughs> the school bus, uh, but davidbus.com. And that will bring you to my, my, uh, my webpage. And on the webpage, there are links to all my books and there are mm. also links to my scientific articles, which can be downloaded for free. Uh, and also links to like the Stalking Health website um, in, in other resources. And it's at davidbus.com. And, um, you know, we'll take people to those resources. Beautiful. Yeah. And I'll link all that down below. So, yeah, thank you. I'm, I've been anticipating this for a while and you did not disappoint, David. So thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you. It's been a delight to chat with you and, and hope we can uh, meet up and chat again sometime. Absolutely. All right, everybody. That was my conversation with David Buss about his brand new book. And yeah, I, I hope I hope all of you learned as much as I did. And like I said, like I didn't even get to touch on all the topics from his book. It is so good. And I think most importantly, like we discussed, you know, I wanted to know, I really wanted to know, has this, does this help people, right? Because those of you who are familiar with the podcast, like I think that there is something that we could take away from literally every book that we read. And I want to know, like, you know, what, what is this solving? What is, you know, what is this research, uh, research leading to? So, you know, uh, as he mentioned, there are many women who have benefited from this and even me, you know, uh, uh, being a father, these are things that help me understand. And, you know, I can talk with my son about this stuff and help him be aware. So he doesn't become one of these bad dudes who is doing dumb stuff. Right. So yeah, this book can be really helpful. So make sure you check out down in the description below, make sure you are following David, grab a copy of this book. And as we mentioned, there are some links to his websites with resources to help people. All right. So make sure you check all that out. And while you're down in the description, below. Make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. Uh, Not only will you see uh, upcoming guests, but I also talk about what books I'm reading, other projects I'm working on. Some of you reached out and I appreciate it. Uh, Last week you found out I got laid off, but now I have more time to do this. So social media is a great place to follow me because I'm working on a ton of stuff that I just didn't have time for. So make sure that you follow me over there and stay tuned. All right. But if you're new to the podcast, make sure you're following it or subscribe to it so you don't miss an episode. And for all of you beautiful people who are like, hey, Chris, what can I do to support this podcast? But I'm broke and I want to help, but I want to do something free. Well, let me tell you two things you could do. One of them is share this, share this, like this episode, important. Everybody needs to hear it. There's a massive problem in the world. So share this episode on social media. That helps a ton. The other thing you can do to help take two seconds, 
head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and leave a review. All right. Both of these things, sharing and leaving the rating and review, this stuff helps with the algorithms, right? And it pushes it out to more people so we can grow this lovely little community. All right. But some other ways, some other ways to support the podcast, uh, since this is kind of my full-time gig right now, if you're interested, there's some more links down below. You can head over to the rewiredsoul.com where I have self-published some books on, you know, mental health, uh, on YouTube, cancel culture, addiction, recovery how to help somebody you know who might be addicted. Uh, and another link down there is if you want to become a patron. So yeah, if you want exclusive content and all that, that helps support the podcast. And lastly, there's also an affiliate link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, mental health is a huge, huge part of my life. And I have personally used BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, the last time, the last time I was unemployed, I got really into therapy to kind of like, yeah, you know, figure all this out. And it's important to me as, you know, not only, you know, like a, a, a boyfriend, but also as a father, because if I'm not keeping my head on straight, I snap at people. I, I'm not able to be who I need to be for the people in my life, you know. Uh, aside from that, I'm not a good friend. I'm not a good son. So therapy has helped me a ton. All right. So if you're interested in improving your mental health, check out the affiliate link for BetterHelp down below. It's affordable. You can do it from the comfort of your own home and you work with a licensed therapist in your state. All right. So another huge thank you to David Buss. He's a busy guy. I appreciate him taking the time to come on and talk about his new book. So make sure you head down to the description, follow him and grab a copy of the book. All right. But yeah, all of you stay tuned. We have a ton of great episodes coming this week. All right. So soak all this in, enjoy the rest of your day, and I will see you next time.